Turn in your copy of Scripture today to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 29. It's a long section, so you've got to bear with me. And uh, the title of the message is Lessons on Hope. I don't know how many of you all have been to a place like uh, uh, the, uh, 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 the, oh my goodness gracious, I just forgot, the Empire State Building. I, man, I was just losing my mind there. I, uh, uh, the Eiffel Tower is what I was thinking, and those are two different places, right? Uh, I don't know how many of y'all been to the Empire State Building or to an amusement park, uh, but what happens there is uh, there are people who are trained in the science and in the psychology of queuing. Uh, a queue is a fancy name for a line. And there are, they teach courses on this in college of how to uh, construct a long line in such a way that people are drawn in and um, bear through the longest of lines. So if you go to the Empire State Building, you uh, walk up and, and you see a line and you say, well, it's not too bad. It's out the door and it's down the block and it's around the corner. So you go to the end of that line and you get in that line and you you suffer through around the corner and down the block. You get to the door and you enter the door and guess what you find? A longer line. And that line zigzags through the lobby and it comes to a set of stairs. You get to those set of stairs. You go up the stairs. You think everything's going to be fine. But once you get to the top of the stairs, guess what you find? A longer line. You zigzag through that room uh, until it takes you to a different room. Once you get in that different room, as you're about to walk in, go around that corner, you think this must be it. But sure enough, in that different room, there is still more lines. Finally, you get through that, that one final room and it gets you to an elevator and it takes you up to the top of the Empire State Building. Uh, the science and the psychology of queuing is that uh, you make enough twists and turns where people believe that there is hope around the bend. But what you discover as you round the bend that it's still just disappointment. When you live your life, it does seem sometimes like there is disappointment lurking around every bend. And the disappointment is more profound, more poignant than uh, trying to get uh, to a uh, a particular amusement, trying to get through a line so you can get to the top of a building and look over uh, the landscape of New York City. What, what we face, real life, real time disappointment is more poignant than that. It's a job is downsized and you're left without one. It's um, paying $275 for an egg. And not being able to afford it. It's thinking you've met your soulmate until your soulmate decides that your souls don't match. It's going to the doctor and hearing those words you have cancer. We live real time with disappointment lurking around every bend. 
And that disappointment can bring despair, and that despair can lead us to hopelessness. But today, my prayer is that through following Jesus in Mark chapter 9, we learn the lessons on hope. Because Jesus is teaching us lessons on hope in following him. We need hope around the bend, even when disappointment greets us. Think about it. You're going to face disappointment. You're going to face difficult days. You're going to face suffering. By the way, um, as we've made this journey uh, through Mark chapter 8, if you remember Mark chapter 8 verse 22, there's a turning point. There's a turning point in Mark's gospel. Up to this point, it's been a speedy narrative. Everything is uthus and utheus. Everything is quick and quickly and quick and quickly. But now, in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, everything changes. Everything slows down. It becomes a snail's pace. From Mark chapter 8, verse 22 onward to the end of the book, uh, Jesus is making a methodical, intentional, painful journey to the cross. The place where he will die as God determined, in the place of sinners like you and me, so that through faith in him we might be rescued and be made fit for for God's family. And Jesus has predicted this, and, and he's told his disciples that the Son of Man, pointing to himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, be killed, and be raised from the dead. And that prediction is not just once in Mark's gospel, but it's at least four times in Mark's gospel. And Jesus is pointing the disciples that there is a day and a time not far from when he's talking to them where he is going to be killed. Um, Jesus, as he's predicted this, he asks the disciples, who do you who do people say that I am? Some say he's the prophet. Some say he's John the Baptist. And Peter, and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus said, oh, yes, you got it right. And then he predicts that he's going to suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and be raised from the dead. And Peter takes him aside. Immediately after this great confession, you are the Christ, uh, Peter takes Jesus aside and says, stop talking all this dead talk. Do you not know how a Messiah is supposed to behave? And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. For you're thinking only about men's stuff, human stuff. You're not thinking about the God stuff. goes on and begins to teach us, as we saw last week, the call to follow him, that call to discipleship. And we saw that that call is for anyone. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But there's also a cost to following Jesus. And again, Jesus is talking about pain. He's talking about suffering. If you're going to follow Jesus, know that you're walking the path of the cross. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
Taking up your cross is not bearing some heavy load. Taking up your cross is taking up the instrument of suffering and death. Being ready to die for Jesus and being ready to be persecuted and suffer for Jesus. By the way, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've got this mistaken idea that as a follower of Jesus, everything's going to be lollipops and rainbows, you are mistaken. The Bible tells us very clearly that as followers of Jesus, we have a different character than the character of this world. We have a different master than the master of this world. We have a different home than this world, that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and we have the character of Jesus Christ, and we are walking a path following the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and this world hates him, and if the world hates Jesus, then the world's going to hate us. We will suffer, and if you believe that following Jesus is devoid of suffering, you need to read the book again. Following Jesus means suffering. Doesn't mean we look for it, but it means we're ready for it. Following Jesus means suffering. And that just bugged the disciples. They didn't like that kind of talk. And Jesus talks about his suffering, and now he says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to suffer. On Wednesday night, we looked at Mark chapter 9, verse 1, and we saw that Jesus begins to uh, take the disciples with all this talk of suffering and death, and, and, and he gives them a word of hope, a, a promise that, that they're going to see God's glory. They're going to see good things. He calls them to cling to that promise. Now, six days later, Mark chapter 9, verse 2, six days later, Jesus gives us lessons on how to have hope when disappointment greets us around every turn. As followers of Jesus, how do we have hope? There are three lessons that... uh, I think Jesus teaches us through these uh, three different separate narratives. They're all of a piece, uh, verses 2 through uh, 9, 2 through 8 is the story of the transfiguration. We'll talk about that in a second. Verses 9 through uh, 13, it's uh, questions that that the disciples had about suffering specifically um, as they're walking down from the mountain. And then verses 14 through 29 is a story of a suffering, struggling father trying to uh, fight for the life of his son. And as we listen to these three different narratives, each one teaches us a lesson on hope. The first lesson on hope, uh, how do we have hope when disappointment greets us around every turn? Number one, gaze upon the glory of Jesus and find hope. Gaze upon the glory of Jesus and find hope. You see, Jesus isn't just any kind of leader. And Jesus isn't just any kind of guy. The transfiguration teaches us that Jesus is the supreme one. Unlike any other, he is the king. And suppose you were in the group, uh, a group of kids that went backpacking in the mountains of western North Carolina. And it was just a day hike. They were supposed to make their journey, get to a place, turn around and come back. But through a series of mishaps, mishaps that no one was really responsible for, it was a bruised knee or maybe it was a sprained leg. Uh, Maybe it was uh, one kid got 
so busy playing in the water that uh, they had to wait for him. A series of mishaps led the group to be on the trail as the night settled in around them. And on this starless, dark night, they weren't back to the trailhead yet. There were no voices of happy campers. And the kids started getting nervous and afraid. I don't know if you've ever been in the deep darkness uh, out in the woods somewhere. It doesn't have to be in the mountains, but anywhere in the woods away from civilization. If you're out there and it just seems like the darkness, the darker it is, the more amplified the sounds are. And the sounds may be as uh, mundane as a cricket chirping or a frog croaking, but if you're in the dark and you're already anxious, you begin to dream that those sounds are the big bad wolf coming to blow your house down. You begin to imagine that this is a ferocious uh, bear that's come to rip you to shreds. And that can happen to adults, much less children. So here these kids are, and they begin to hear the sounds, and they can't see, uh, and they're stuck on the trail, and, and, and their, their fears begin to lead to panic. And, and you've seen this happen. I've seen it happen in our church, where specific fears lead to a, a sense of panic among the people, and that panic makes people do crazy things, even followers of Jesus. These kids begin to panic, and they begin to grumble, and they begin to complain. They begin to uh, bemoan where they are and how bad it's been, even though a few, uh, a few hours before they were rejoicing and singing and laughing and playing. But now it's terrible. The world is coming to an end. And in the midst of their panic, they hear a voice. Hey, kids. It's all right. We're all right. Just follow me. I know where we're going. It was their leader. The one who was the adult among the kids. The one who had traveled the path before. The one who knew how to get from point A to point B even in the darkness. And he said, all you have to do is focus on me and follow me, and I'll get you home, and you'll be safe. What we learn from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, is that Jesus is the right kind of leader to give us hope. Listen. Begin verse 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Transfigured there is the term from which we get metamorphosis, which means to be changed. And, and the picture there is that something supernatural happens on top of that mountain. That Jesus 
is changed. And make no mistake, it is a precursor, it is a, a, a prefigurement of the resurrection that Jesus is going to have. He's been talking about suffering. Now he's going to give him a glimpse of what the resurrection is going to look like. He's transfigured. By the way, it's transfigured. It's in the passive voice. That means that Jesus didn't transfigure himself, but God transfigured him. That, that God began to peel back heaven to show the glory of Jesus Christ. Here, Peter, James, and John are, are, are standing in the suburbs of heaven itself as they see Jesus changed. It goes on, verse, uh, verse 3, describing the transfiguration, describing the transformation, the change that began to take place. It says, his clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. I mean, it, he's, he's, he's brilliant in display. He's shining like nobody's ever seen someone shine on this earth before. He is, uh, he is engulfed in white in a way that they have never seen before. Couldn't even describe it adequately. Verse 4 goes on, not just in his appearance, but in his company. And Elijah with Moses appeared to them. And they were talking with Jesus. I don't know what they were talking about. That, that, that's reserved for the halls of heaven. We don't know what the conversation was, but I can imagine, can't you? Here's Jesus with Moses and Elijah. Elijah, who was the prophet among prophets who declared the coming of Jesus. Moses, who was also a prophet and the giver of the law, the Old Testament, who pointed to Jesus. And here they are with Jesus, standing on the mount, Jesus transfigured. And they're like, hey, Jesus, how's it going? Jesus said, man, I'm, I'm on my way. And Moses and Elijah said, man, we're, we're, we're rooting for you. Goodness gracious. I, I, it's going to be tough. And Jesus says, yeah, it's going to be tough. Mo Moses and Elijah said, yeah, it's tough. It was tough on us when we were just servants of God. Now, the Son of God, you're the Son of God, and you're going to go die. Oh, goodness gracious, Jesus, it's going to be tough. But we're with you as best we can be. We're supporting you. Come on, let's do it. We don't know what the conversation was like, but I don't think Jesus needed a pep talk, but I think Moses and Elijah needed to give one. Here they are, the law and the prophets, standing with the one to whom they had been pointing all this time. Jesus, the Messiah. It goes on. Verse 5. Peter answered and said uh, to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Uh, you know, bad idea. Bad idea for a couple of reasons, because uh, what Peter was doing, number one, he called Jesus rabbi uh, when Jesus is radiating the glory of heaven. Oh, teacher. Number two, it was a bad idea because he said, let's build three tabernacles, putting Elijah, Moses, and Jesus all on equal footing. Wrong. But before we give Peter a bad time, I want you to look at verse 6. Peter said, verse 5, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Verse 6, love verse 6. He said that because he didn't know what to say. You see it? Do you know people like that? They don't know what to say, so they just blurt out anything that comes to their head. He was afraid, so he just began to talk. 
Verse 6, verse 7. God decided he would intervene in this moment. A cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. So here's a couple of things. The reason we find hope in Jesus is because of who Jesus is. When we set our gaze upon Jesus, this side of the cross and the empty tomb, the, the, the glory of Jesus has already been peeled back. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. When God said, here is my beloved son, listen to him, he's saying this is the unique one. Moses and Elijah, they were servants of God. But Moses couldn't uh, fix the hardened heart of the people. Elijah resulted, uh, re, uh, uh, became vindictive against the people of God because he wasn't getting his way. They were servants of God. They were faithful most of the time, but they were finite in their ability. They could lead as far as they knew, but they didn't know what they didn't know. They were faithful servants of the Lord. They, they, they were heroes of the Old Testament, and rightly should be. But they were simply servants. Jesus is the servant of God, but he's more. He is the son of God. He is the preexistent one whom God has sent on a mission to redeem and rescue sinners like you and me. He is the only hope for the human heart. And the transfiguration displays him in his unique glory. Friends, we set our gaze upon Jesus every day because he is the leader who can take us all the way. He's the leader we can trust. And when the darkness falls on a starless night and disappointment lurks around every turn, Jesus is the glorious one who's conquered death, hell, and the grave already. Jesus is the unique one who intercedes on our behalf in the throne of God right now. Jesus is the one we can count on and trust, and he will lead us faithfully, safely home. So when you wake up to tomorrow morning, stop looking at all the other voices, all the other people that you think can get you where you want to go, and set your gaze upon Jesus. That's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews was talking about. Hebrews chapter 11, he talks about all the heroes of faith like Moses and Elijah. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, this great crescendo, he says, yeah, we've got all these heroes. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of these witnesses, what do we do? We, we run with endurance, the race has been set before us. We set aside the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. But what do we do? We set our sight, our focus on Jesus. We set our gaze upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, friends. When we set our gaze upon Jesus, the glorious one, who conquered death itself and delivered life to us, we find hope. So tomorrow morning, the very first thing I challenge you to do, because you know disappointment is going to be lurking around the corner. Set your gaze on Jesus.
and keep your gaze on him. He's the glorious one. To keep our gaze on Jesus also means that we follow the instructions that he gives. See, you're not going to get from point A to point B in the pitch black of night with disappointment and and despair awaiting us around every turn unless your gaze leads to obedience. See, it's not enough to look on Jesus, the glorious one. You must do what he says. God says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear there. Hear there. Sorry. The command to hear Jesus is a command not merely to listen to his words. It's a command to do what he says. Trust him. You want to have hope? Gaze upon the glory of Jesus and find it. The second scene that we have is Peter and James and John with Jesus coming down from the mountain. And this story, this this scene teaches us that we must cling to the victory of Jesus and find hope. Uh, I've used this before, but it fits, and so I'm using it again. I hadn't used it in a couple of years, but but it's a it, it I'm not sure it's a preacher story, but it's it, it it's one that preachers have used. It's the tale of a uh, kid's baseball team, and the home team is behind 11 to nothing. One of the fathers of the kids that are playing drives up from work and the game's already underway. He looks at the scoreboard and he says, oh my goodness, his son's team is losing 11 to nothing. So the dad walks up to where his son is sitting on the bench and he's saying, oh son, I'm Man, I am so sorry. I know this is tough. It's a tough game. And um, the boy looks up at his dad and said, a smile on his face. He said, Dad, it's okay. We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. <laughs> that boy was clinging to victory. We hadn't had our shot yet. The disciples, beginning verse 9, the disciples are walking down from the mountain. And just the imagery there is pretty powerful. You have uh, uh, on the mountain there is glory. Uh, On the way down there's confusion. On the mountain there's victory. On the way down it seems like we're headed to defeat. On on top of the mountain there's the cloud and the Shekinah glory. Shekinah is the glory of God. And and on the way down the, the clouds disappeared and and, and, and Jesus says, don't talk about this to anybody. So they begin to ask questions. You can read it for yourself. Uh, they begin to ask questions about Elijah. I said, um, Jesus, the scribes teach us about Elijah, the forerunner, coming first. And, and, and that was their question. They wanted some theological discussion about Elijah. But, but really, Jesus understood that their question really wasn't about Elijah. It was about the fact that he told them in verse 9, don't say anything to anybody until the Son of Man rises from the dead. Again, this dead talk. They've been on the mountain. Jesus is talking about death again. What's up with that? So they push back, and they're saying, well, there's the forerunner. His name's Elijah. Elijah, um, he's the one, according to Malachi 3 and 4, you can read that later, Malachi 3 and 4, Elijah's the one who was the forerunner, one like Elijah's going to come, he's going to set things right, he's going he's to inaugurate <coughs> the coming of the Messiah, 
who's going to restore all things, and, and, and it's going to be a great day. And, and so they're saying, well, if Elijah's coming, he's going to make everything right, then why do you keep talking about death? Why do you keep pointing to suffering, not just yours, but ours? And Jesus said, yeah, it talks about Elijah coming, sure. And Elijah's already come. He's pointing to John the Baptist. You remember that uh, in the New Testament, the Elijah uh, that was portrayed in Malachi 3 and 4 was fulfilled in John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, the voice crying in the wilderness, make way, uh, make straight the paths of the Lord. And, And so John the Baptist, he's there and he's preaching, but do you know what happened to John the Baptist? Do you know what happened to John the Baptist? Whack! Dude got his head chopped off by Herod. So Jesus says, yeah, and, and, and understand that the forerunner has come, and they did to him whatever they wanted. Verse 13. They killed him. He suffered. See, Jesus understood that suffering was going to happen, that persecution was certain, that his death was a reality. He understood that. He had come to die. But just as certain as his suffering was his resurrection. And look at verse 9 again. Till the Son of Man be raised from the dead. He's saying, look, I'm going to be raised from the dead. You can count on it. You can set your clock by it. Three days after I'm dead, I'm rising again. They didn't understand it. Verse 10, we don't know what he's talking about, this rising from the dead stuff. But it was a certainty. And in the same way, when we set our gaze upon Jesus and we follow his instructions, suffering's going to happen. There will be disappointment lurking around every turn for you and for me. That's a reality. But just as certain as our suffering is the victory of Christ's resurrection applied to our lives. You see, as Peter said, and I believe Peter was the one who gave testimony to this encounter uh, to John Mark as he wrote it down. As Peter uh, described it in 1 Peter 1, he said, he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you who believe on Jesus. Good. Guys, we have victory. We have victory no matter the darkness that has descended upon us. We have victory. We have victory no matter the disappointment or the, or the despair that lurks around every corner. We have victory. When we have Jesus, we cling to that victory. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 that this resurrection that Jesus experienced is applied to our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit so that every day we are living in that same kind of power, immense, immeasurable, great power. The power that raised Christ from the dead belongs to those who belong to Jesus. So set your gaze upon the King of glory, follow his instructions, and cling to the victory. Third, that's pretty good. I got excited about that one. Third, not only do we gaze upon Jesus and find hope, not only do we cling to the victory and find hope, but the last scene is a scene of living by faith. You want to have hope? 
today, tomorrow, the next day, regardless of circumstances around you, we must live by faith in Jesus and live in that hope. Begin verse 14, Jesus and the disciples came down from the mountain. On the top of the mountain, there's glory. In the valley, there's defeat. On the top of the mountain, there's God, the Father, declaring his pleasure on his perfect son. Down in the valley, there's a struggling father fighting for the life of his broken son and fighting for the life of his broken faith. Many times we're on top of the mountain, and that mountaintop experience is wonderful. It's great. It's marvelous. Every mountaintop is a preparation for the valley. They get down to the valley, and I won't read it. You can read it. Time's passing us by. But in the valley, there's a father who's brought his son to the disciples to be healed. He's possessed by the devil and demons. The disciples try to help the boy, help the father, but they can't. And Jesus shows up, and in frustration, he says, bring the boy to me. He says, it's verse, 20, uh, verse 19, he says, uh, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring the boy to me. He comes to the father and says, what do you want me to do? I want you to heal my son. Look at verse 23. Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And so Jesus did. He took the boy and he cast out the demon. They go back to the house where they're staying, and the disciples say, Jesus, why is it that we could not cast out the demon? And Jesus said, stuff like that can only happen through prayer and fasting. Now, what does all that mean? Well, for the father, living in frustration because his son is sick and his faith is weak, And the disciples can't help. For the disciples, whose faith is weak, they want to help, but they can't. For Jesus, the frustration over all these people who've been walking with him and still have weak faith or lack faith, faithless generation. There's a lot of frustration going on. A lot of despair, a lot of disappointment. That's greeted a bunch of people around every turn. For the Father, the, the, the beauty of this passage is that Jesus says, if you can believe, if you can believe, for all things are possible for him who believes. I believe, but it doesn't seem enough, the Father said. Help me in my unbelief. I love that prayer. Aren't there moments in your life where you believe, but there just doesn't seem enough? And you say, oh, oh, Jesus, will you help my unbelief? 
And, and the, the beauty is that Jesus says, okay, let me help. And immediately he does what only God can do and casts the demon out of that boy. That miraculous work of Jesus in that little boy's life emboldened the faith of the father. The same thing's true for you and for me in the frustration of our days. We, we look at our disappointments. We look at the, the, the challenges, the, um, the, the despairing moments that, that come our way, the difficulties that we can't control. We look at all those things and we say, Jesus, I believe. I believe you died on a cross for me. I believe you were raised from the dead. I'm looking to you and I'm, I'm, I'm clinging to the victory, but it seems like disappointment is winning. I, I'm trying. I'm in the valley. I'm not on the mountain. I need your help. I believe. Help my unbelief. And you know what Jesus does? He answers our prayer. And supernaturally, by his spirit, begins to awaken the faith we need to meet the disappointment with hope. But you got to pray the prayer. you gotta, you got to trust Jesus enough to say, Lord, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. How do you get to that place? How do you get to the place where you're talking to Jesus enough to say, look, I know who you are, but I also know who I am? And where I am is a lot weaker than where you need me to be. Help me in my unbelief. To get to that place, the disciples had to learn the powerful principle of prayer and fasting. Now, please understand, prayer and fasting, I don't think Jesus is merely talking about praying and fasting, as though those were specific uh, mantras or, or magical implements that we can use to somehow cast out demons. Now, I, I think what he's talking about there is what happens when we pray faithfully and fast faithfully. You see, prayer and fasting is not uh, some ritual that we go through, but rather it is a discipline that we practice in order to get closer to Jesus. The goal of prayer is communion with him. The goal of fasting is deepen our hunger for him. Do you want to know where, how we can get to the place where we recognize, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I, I, I know who you are, but I also know who, who I am and where I am and where I am is not where you need me to be. So, Lord, I, I, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Do you know how you get to that place? By daily Spending intimate moments with your Savior. Friends, I believe that the church is impotent today because so many in our body of believers fails or forgets that living by faith means that I'm walking with Jesus every day. It's not merely gazing on Jesus. It's not merely clinging to the victory he's procured. But it's also walking with him hand in hand, heart to heart. Opening our hearts and opening his word. Opening our hearts and opening our mouths in prayer. Opening our hearts and closing our mouths to food. <laughs> or to TikTok. Or to social media or to Be Real, or to CNN, or to Fox, 
shutting the door. It would be great if our church would take a fast from certain things that rob us of intimacy with Jesus. Even the good things. Just a test. How many of y'all think, and this will be generational, how many of y'all think you spent more time watching TV than you did talking to Jesus yesterday or the day before? How many of y'all think that you spent more time surfing and scrolling on your phone than you did talking with Jesus? And we wonder why we lack faith. See, living by faith means we're walking with Jesus. Walking with Jesus isn't just a, I, I, it, it, the, the story of the husband who married his wife 20 years later. She said, do, do you still love me? And he said, well, I told you 20 years ago that I loved you. And if it changes, I'll let you know. And some of us are treating Jesus, just, by the way, that's horrific. And some of us are treating Jesus just like that. He saved me from hell. What else do I need to do? You need to walk with him. Living by faith means walking with Jesus. So today, I, I want you to have hope. You're going through the maze of, of uh, disappointments around every bend. I, I want you to have hope. I want, I want Eric Thomas to have hope. Then gaze upon Jesus. Do what he says. Cling to the victory that his resurrection provides. And live by faith so that you can live in hope. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, in these moments, I know that there are people who have gathered with us who are not yet followers of Jesus, who have not put their lives in his hands, who have entrusted, have not entrusted themselves into your care. They may be religious or moral, but they're not yet followers of Jesus. I pray, oh God, that you would spark in their hearts the questions they need and the faith they need to cross that line from seeking something to finding their only hope, who is Jesus. Give them the courage and the faith they need to turn from their sin, to admit that their sin has separated them from you Give them the courage and the faith they need to believe that Jesus died on a cross for their sin in their place, was raised from the dead to give them life and victory, forgiveness, and family with you. And I pray, God, that you would give them the faith they need to commit their lives to you, all of themselves, as best they know how to lay their lives in your hands. Father, for the followers of Jesus in this room, like me, I pray that you would convict me of my faithlessness. Convict me where I'm looking to someone or something else for the victory instead of you. I pray that you would once again show me who you are. And show me who I am so that I might be able to say, Lord, I believe, just help my unbelief. And now, Father, as we praise you through song, I, I'm, I'm asking that you would, by your Spirit, do a mighty work of grace among those who've gathered here. 
be glorified as we praise you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things.